Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Unheard. It's almost four years since countries across the Western world started forcibly shutting down their societies in a policy copied from China that became known as lockdowns. It had never been attempted before in human history. Currently, here in the UK, the news is full of the COVID inquiry, where politicians are talking about the lessons from COVID, what can be learned, what should be done differently next time. Everyone seems fixated on a predetermined narrative that lockdown happened too late, and the game seems to be to try and prove that and catch politicians out in that direction. There is no discussion, as far as we can see. In fact, it's explicitly outside the remit of the inquiry about the impact of lockdowns. There's almost no mention of Sweden, the country that never locked down and has the best excess death results in all of Europe. Well, today, the think tank, the Center for Social Justice, produced a big report into the state of the poorest in our country. It is filled with new information and gives us an opportunity to do something perhaps more useful, which is to observe with actual concrete data what the impact of those lockdown measures was. Andy Cook, the chief executive of the CSJ, is here to talk us through them. Hi, Andy. Hi, Freddie. Having spent all of this time on the report, what's your overall sense of what that lockdown period did to our society? We spent the last year going around communities, some of the poorest communities in the country, hearing from small charities, and I stress the word small charities who are properly on the front line dealing with some of the toughest cases and situations going. And what we found is that lockdown policy poured petrol on the fires that were already out there in this country. The kind of two worlds narrative of those most struggling and kind of middle England or whatever you want to like uh, call it, those have been absolutely exacerbated. They so the gap, been, the gap between... has got bigger and, and more hardened and lockdown definitely did, did that. I mean, can you imagine just as a pure picture being on your own in a high rise flat with a couple of kids how you deal with not being allowed out, how homeschooling if you don't have any devices in there. All of these things were not thought about at the time and they're certainly not being thought about now. Because that was said a lot at the time that it was a sort of middle class policy. There was this sense that if you had a nice house and a nice garden and you had a desk job where you could work from home on your laptop, lockdowns were kind of a nice period. People were writing articles about how they were getting to know their families and their neighbours and having a nice time in their villages or their country houses. But what you found is that for, for most people, for ordinary people, particularly for really struggling people, it was a complete disaster. Absolutely, yeah. And you heard all this kind of narrative about, you know, actually it's lovely, I've shopped locally for the first time in my history and bought... Baking bread. But yeah, exactly, or whatever it was at the point. That was not what the conversations going on in some of the toughest households. And can you imagine if you were holed up with an abuser that had been there 
uh, for however long. Can you imagine if you've, your child has already been struggling, you know, and there is no added support in that way? I mean, lots of even the big support networks, big charities, they were closing or furloughing themselves. And it was the little guys that picked up many, much of the pieces. So, yeah, the, the conversation that happened in the Westminster world and Middle England was not the conversation happening at, at the grassroots. Well, let's dig into some of that. Uh, I thought we'd start off by just reminding ourselves what the cost was. You've broken it down here using National Audit Office numbers. The grand total of government spending during COVID is £376 billion. I mean, let's just try and put that into context. Is that the most expensive government policy in history? Other than probably HS2, uh, that they've you know, honestly, which they've cancelled. Um, genuinely, have we ever seen a bigger spend other than wars? Maybe I don't know. I, I don't know a context to put that in. That is absolutely massive as a spend. And again, there's this is not that there weren't issues at the time. Of course, we all know that, and there was there's panic mode and all the rest. But goodness me, that is a huge splurge of cash considering some of the issues we've now got. It's made things a lot worse at the bottom ends, and they're struggling to catch up with knowing how to deal with it. I mean, I notice you're using the government language here, so it says support for businesses. Mm. That's a kind of, it's a strange way of putting it when you shut down businesses and forbid customers from going to them. I guess this is furlough and paying people not to work, basically. Emergency responses, support for individuals, I don't exactly know what that is. Somewhere in here, presumably, is the huge amount spent on health systems that were never used, the various apps and notifications, the hospitals that were built in conference centres that were never used. It's just, it's painful to see the sheer amount of of money that just got poured away and has made us a dramatically poorer country. Yeah, and actually, even now, the support for businesses, yet we may well have drunk the Kool-Aid of government uh, language there, except that I guess we're laying out, yeah, this huge investment of cash But even in those issues like the support for businesses, which may have kept people ticking over or businesses ticking over at that time, well, we now see the huge swathe of people that have been signed off sick as a result of it, you know. So it's kind of, it was this emergency sticking plaster, panic plaster, that is now being ripped off and, uh, you know, the issues are even deeper and will cost even more to get us out of them. You talk about people being signed off sick there. I think we should go to that next, actually. COVID-19, universal credit claimant rise. So this is one of the charts that really struck me as the most extraordinary. And that, just to explain to people, is people claiming benefits. So people, there's something here in the UK called universal credit, which essentially allows you to claim extra government money if you either have no job or have a job that doesn't pay you enough. And what this chart seems to show is it pretty much doubles from the beginning of 2020 to the end of the last lockdown in 2021, from 3 million people to 6 million people. And then instead of it coming down, when the lockdowns ended, it's still up there. Yeah. So how, explain that to us. How did that happen? Well, I mean, at the time, yeah, lots of people who may have been dropped out of work went to universal credit, which, as you say, is the welfare system which, which captures uh, a lot of people. Um, and so the numbers were, were bolstered. And in a way, it was a payment mechanism that there's some strengths to what has been designed in it, that it was an electronic system versus some of the other countries that had people queuing and all the rest outside job centres or their equivalent. So on the one hand, the system captured everyone, which is a great success story. 
But on the other, you've had a load of people that swelled into this system. And the, the bigger thing that's happened here is huge amounts of people that essentially ended up on the sickness side of this. That's where the lasting legacy has ended up hitting. 2.6 million people are a part of this welfare system now, and they're on sick. That, and there was an increase of half a million on long-term sick in our welfare system. Now, the reason that's important is because if you are on the sickness side of it, it's very difficult for the benefit system and the conditionality elements to it, i.e. the bits of it that help push people into work, both with a carrot and a bit of a stick, um, that no longer performs. That doesn't function because people are in the sickness side of it. So essentially, they're signed off on welfare. And, and once you're on welfare sick, it's quite hard to come off it. Very, very difficult because to come off Because if you're getting it. money for not working and maybe you feel depressed, maybe you're, you think you've got long COVID, exactly what that means, we don't really know. Maybe you're suffering from anxiety. Maybe all of these things that we're going to look at some charts in a moment have just exploded yeah. since that period. You're not going to suddenly say, oh, and I feel fine now. You know, stop paying me that money. I'm going to go to a job centre and try and get a job. Yeah, and the longer you are in that position, the less chance you ever have of coming back. Now, to, to be fair, government have tried to then put in a whole new chunk to try and support this called universal support, which is something that we, that we had designed. We found it in a, in a small charity in Oldham. And it was always meant to run in a parallel track to the benefit system. And that is essentially support workers to help people who are signed off in long term and move them back in. Um, and they put a billion pound, yep, more spend, a billion pound into that, and they've doubled that, and it's it's moving across. They're trying to get get that there. But um, we, through our own sums as well, the 700,000 people who are in that sick bracket who want to work, they are desperate to work, but because of the reasons that you mentioned, are really struggling to do that. And they're very scared that the minute they step into work, they lose their benefit. So all, all the incentives are st to stay right where they are, and the support structures. So this is, a, this is a major issue. You've got another chart here showing UK vacancies. Mm. And of course, they plummeted during lockdowns, but they're higher than ever. Higher than ever. So the, the, the same picture is true nationally. So it's not that there aren't jobs out there. It's, there are loads of vacancies, but people aren't taking them because they've got these various complaints, sicknesses, mental health issues, or they're somehow stuck in a system which doesn't incentivize them to go back to work. Absolutely. I mean, the disconnect, the mismatch, whatever word you want to use for it, is absolutely stark. And government are trying to roll out some of these schemes to to change it, but it's it's kind of too slow, uh, and and the potential's all there, but it's uh, we're we're in big trouble. Let's look at the mental health aspect because this is something again that we talked about a lot during, and some of us here unheard, and I know there were other outlets as well. We're trying to highlight this back in twenty twenty, but. The statistics are really, really very stark indeed. So according to your report, mental ill health among children is hugely up since the pandemic and hasn't come back down. So your statistic here is that it went from one in nine to one in six children suffering from some kind of mental health condition. And that's a quarter of oldest children. Apparently, of all of the cohorts, older teenage boys in particular were suffering. So pre-pandemic, one in nine children were suffering from some kind of clinically diagnosed mental health situation. Where we currently stand now is one in six. So that's post-pandemic as, you know, the curtain's drawn on that little chapter, so to speak. And we predict that in five years' time, it'll be one in four 
children. So you see the, not just the kind of <laughs> mad change, but the pace of change where things have got rapidly worse in that way. So this is partly caused by children just being stuck at home for so long, sitting on their telephones, not having a normal social experience, and they've somehow like, they've gone off kilter, and they're struggling to get back to where they should be. Yeah, well, there's a whole range of things. And, you know, obviously, the mental health side is incredibly tricky to navigate. It's not one size fits all. So there's a range of different issues, but it's across different age groups. I mean, you talk about children who'd been who'd not had the chance to socialise in their early years were at home uh, with just their mums or dads. Then going into primary school, we've heard mad stories about the kind of school readiness, for want of a better phrase, of children who have, who've gone in from the poorest areas because they've had no other kind of person around them, no flavour of life, no learning from any other child. Right at that young end through to yeah, adolescent children who ended up in bedrooms, on their own, on devices, largely. And again, no chance to socialise, no chance to sport, all of those things which, which we know are, are incredibly important. So on, on every age level, this shutting down is not how we are as people. That's not what we do. And so it's, had, it's got a long tail of an, of an effect. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What is so scandalous, really, and it's, you know, I don't use that word very often, but it really does feel scandalous, is if you cast your mind back to 2020 and 2021, there were charts on the TV all the time. Uh, supposedly, the government was obsessed with data. It was all about infections, projections, you know, COVID-19, recovery rates, etc. There was one issue that was being obsessively measured. But we didn't see charts of mental health of teenagers. We didn't see charts about mental health of our children. And we've spent £380 billion on a government policy that has had this kind of effect. It just seems, it's a, it seems like a generational scandal. Yeah, and young people have been have absolutely, absolutely got shafted in this way. If right now, every day, major broadcasters were pumping out pure stats on how many road traffic accidents there were or, or near misses, just every you know, clogging our thing, no one would ever get in a car again. You know, it was just absolutely all about infection rates and all about deaths, frankly. I remember it. We'd all remember it. Whereas actually that was part of the, you know, part of the problem that there's no balance as to some of the other graphs, some of the other stats that were going on. And I, and I do remember it vividly that you're either put in a box of you either save lives or save the economy as if the economy, you know, that's kind of, you mean that you were well, talking about. there was also save granny. That was mm. talked about yeah. a lot, and it's almost like the whole of society is rearranged to minimise the risks to a certain older cohort. Meanwhile, younger people were just sacrificed. If we look at this next chart, which is all about absenteeism from school, this one, again, it, it, it's, it's very shocking to see because you see a line going upwards and it hasn't come back down after COVID. Now, this isn't, well, they're all shocking, but this is 
this is bad. This is really bad. So, again, not saying that there wasn't problems pre-lockdown. About 65,000 children were absent from school. Severe absence, as this chart. Right, so this, this is specifically severe absence, severe which absence. means what? means out of school over 50% of the time. There's also persistent absence, which is ten, up to 10% of the time. But if you look at that, it's quite staggering about the numbers of children that began to disengage a lot of the time from school. And that number is now at 140,000. I mean, just... <laughs> so there's 140,000 missing children yes. yeah. from the education system where that number was 60,000 prior to lockdown. Yeah that we called them ghost children. No one knows where they are, they're kind of whether they're at home or in their estates, or and there's a whole varied reason to it. But that that's our future generation. That, you know, huge, huge swathes of them, 134% increase, that is. And it's getting worse from what our uh, measures think. So persistent absence is, was at 1.8 million, and that's now going, gone down a bit to 1.6 million. But severe absence, which is the real tough one, is getting worse, and no one's doing anything about it. And, and it, of course, not mentioned in the COVID inquiry. So whilst everyone's arguing well, about should we have locked down one week earlier or not in March 2020, which is the complete obsession of the mainstream press, nobody's talking about these enormous generational impacts on our country. They weren't even going to have children and young people in the COVID inquiry at the start, if you remember, people had to lobby for that to happen. Um, and, you know, these, this is, you know, people will talk about um, how you get people who have struggled all their life to, I don't know, have a fair crack of the whip and discover their potential. And education is always seen as the key thing. Well, right in front of us right now, we've got 140,000 kids that are just not in it. And so any catch-up scheme, anything that government... You can't catch up if, you're not, if you don't show up, frankly, and loads of them are not showing up. And just, sorry, two, two more things on this, quite fascinating things. Of, and uh, uh, Public First put out a really interesting poll on this to parents to f find out why absentee was so big now. And the two major findings that came back were, number one, that parents no longer see it since COVID, no longer see it's their responsibility to get their child into school over uh, overridingly. And secondly, no one, no one saw five-day weeks as important anymore, so four-day would do or so. So this, there's this, this broken a kind of link between education as a key thing and the home life. And that is what, honestly, if you want to talk about impact of COVID, these numbers, I think, are going to a... a impact of lockdown, let's sorry, call it what it is. Sorry, impact of lockdown have broken that critical link. And do you think there's a connection to workplace attendance there? Because if the sense is that mum and dad, if you have two parents, are not going to work five days a week anymore, why should the kids... I mean, is it? Do you think there is a link there that, with the with the sense that you don't need to turn up at the workplace five days a week, maybe schools should follow a similar pattern? There's a lot of celebration of the kind of liberation from a five day working week. Maybe what we're seeing here with school absenteeism is an impact of that. If I'm going to work from home on a certain day, and one of my daughters is kicking off, saying I don't want to go in, do you know what part of you thinks? Oh, well, I can I can manage with this then, you know, because you're at home and actually. You know, you save yourself the grief a little bit. So you you know you hear stories like that emerging, and again, particularly in the poorest areas, if to go to your point, if people know they're going to be at home and the child is kicking off, then you know you can make yourself life a bit easier for yourself. The, the unintended consequences of all of these things that people thought were so great. 
again, we haven't seen enough data about this, and it's just very striking to see it in black and white. So you've got methadone-related deaths in England and Wales all the way back to 1993. Big spike after 2020. Methadone is a drug that is used as a replacement for heroin and severe addictions. Do we have any sense of, of how that came about? No, I don't, frankly, but I just know it's bad. Um, and we're looking into it further. Our small charities that we operate and we took evidence from all across the country, they call methadone the invisible handcuffs. They talk about how it gets into your bones. And yet it's a, it's a system that we use all too frequently in this country. Um, what we saw was... It's made available by yeah, health, but services, health in services in prisons. Prisons, different things like that. What we saw in the lockdown, during the lockdown period, is people um, who, were, particularly in alcohol, we saw, so they were getting a grip of alcohol addiction in the country. Uh, and then we saw people who were in recovery or whatever basically kind of drop out, you know, and, and return to those ways because the, the sports systems were there. You're sat in your home, you know, all of those kind of things. And we think what's happening here was, is a bit more of this, the kind of need for methadone, the addictions were going, coming thick and fast. Uh, and as, as a result, the problem here is once you've given someone methadone, it's very difficult to get off it. It's actually more addictive than heroin in the first place. So we've seen this huge swathe of people, more people having methadone, which I am fearful that means uh, there'll be more people on it in the longer term. Again, it's a, it looks like a temporary fix. Well, we've got an um, quote-unquote emergency. Let's make sure everyone's yeah. got what they need to get through. But turns out they can't get off it afterwards. And, and again, this is, this is the key thing. You know, when you want to help change the life, and this is our small charities of, of people who are addicted to things, abstinence-based recovery is the best thing that you can do. You're freeing them of it. They've got potential rather than just substituting for other substances. We've just seen a lot of substitution going on here that is actually far more addictive. And the chances of these guys getting off are far less now than if it had just, I say, just been an addiction to heroin. Uh, I'm going to throw a couple more at you. Just They might seem a bit random after the topics we've been talking about, but I think they show the breadth of the impact. The outstanding court cases, i.e. court cases that we've just not managed to deal with, again, zoomed up during 2020 because suddenly everything was closed, and they haven't come back down. In fact, there are more outstanding court cases now in 2023 than there have ever been, and there were in 2020 at the peak. So we've potentially broken our criminal justice system in, by accident during this little experiment. Well, and I'd say people, well, that matters for a lot of reasons, but a big reason that matters in the poorest communities is that there is a, there's a feel of there's no rule of law there. The biggest issue by far when we went across from community to community was crime. And in lockdown, that was, that was seen as consistent in the poorest areas. It got a bit better in the Middle England areas. In the poorest areas, that was sustained at that level. And now, because there's no feel that anyone's getting prosecuted, I think we found something like only 8% of people, of victims, feel anything's going to be done about crime. But because there's no feel of any retribution, any law and order, well, in these areas, crime became rife and it became very scary. So even though overall crime trends are actually going uh, in, a, in a positive direction, the feel in areas, because of stats like this, no one's getting prosecuted, you've got a backlog, the length of your arm, people are getting away with it, it's, they're scary places to live. It's that sense of a kind of emergency that then becomes an excuse 
I'm sure the same thing has happened in the health service. You haven't got statistics about that in this report, but you know, people became so far behind during that period that it's always well, you know, COVID happened. So of course you need to be understanding. Yeah. Wait lists are longer. Yeah. You're not going to get. We're not going to prosecute the guy who stole your mobile phone, your bicycle, broke into your house because well, COVID. Yeah. What we're seeing is the effect of that. Finally, let's look at households in temporary accommodation. Once again, there's a red line there for households in B&B hotels, and the grey line shows families that have children. That's actually been going up for some time. There's a lot of reasons for that, no doubt. Immigration is probably a part of it. What's happening there? Why, why has that line become so steeply inclining? Well, again, in the, in the lockdown, you see you're kind of... Um the line dropped a bit because they, they started to use things like the Everybody In scheme. The minute that had all stopped, it's this kind of everyone zoomed around an area and spent all of this money, then suddenly you, you pull the plug on that and there's less properties out there, there's less people able to access them, the support services all clogged up, people working from home less able to get the interaction they need to sort their home situation out. And so you just see it then spike through. And so I, they're, they're staying in B&Bs. Yeah, essentially, huge cost. The to, government is paying... For people to stay in B and Bs, huge, huge different. Well, whole different swathes of what's you know across the environment of what's going on. More people ending up out of their homes. More children we've seen made homeless as well. And it was like this concentration effect of we need to sort this for right now. But then suddenly it stops. Pull the plug on it. You pull the plug on all that kind of money, and suddenly you know your, your foundations are a threadbare and we're seeing the impact of that. So we've done a bit of a whistle-stop tour here of your research, which I do think is really important. Just to restate it, down the road from here, not 200 metres away from where we're sitting, they've been conducting this inquiry. In fact, the Prime Minister was there today answering questions about uh, lessons that could be learned from the, from the COVID experience. None of this, as far as I know, is being discussed. And yet, what it seems like you have confirmed, we suspected, is that under the hood, in areas across our society, we broke something pretty fundamental during that global experiment. And we haven't got back to where we were before. Nowhere near got back. The scale of response has not matched the scale of need purely on policy making terms. It terrifies me that you've got an investigation going on into what happened and they're not even analysing this kind of stuff. It genuinely terrifies me because when the next, it's all about, I remember at the time it was all about the argument was lockdown or lockdown harder. And, and now in a sense, the the kind of, you know, the, the court that's happening up the road, as you say, 200 metres away, is almost challenging on lockdown being the only option that was there. Now, again, I'm not saying it wasn't difficult through that time. Goodness me, we know it all was. But to do a proper analysis and reflection on that period, you've got to bring in stuff like this, the cost of things that are happening now, the cost of lives that have just been, are being wrecked every day now, and not just in the instant that was then. So um, it, yeah, I, I find it terrifying that they are not having a balanced approach to what that policy intervention was. Somewhere, there's no chart for this either because it's hard to measure. There's a political cost in a really serious way, which is that if people see, they know what's happening in their community, in their family. They saw their elderly parents, you know, diminished during the course of those lockdowns. They saw, they see what's happened to their kids and they know that it's not being talked about. 
by the powers that be. They'll, that sense of cynicism, of alienation, sense that politicians aren't actually useful, they're not actually working for you, is just going to get worse, isn't it? We're, we're going to get an even more sort of dark situation in terms of politics. Well, I hope, I hope not. I think, there's a, I think there's also another thing here that for a, a real big period, if you think about it, we were all totally at the whim of government. You know, they only let us do three things, and that was go out for a, a jog, go and shop at a certain time, and I can't remember what the other thing was. You know, they were absolutely on us. Micromanaging. Micromanaging. Now you've come out, and there's a still feel that there's a need to micromanage, there's a need to invest, and yet that's gone. You know, even in the investigation, it's got they're not analysing those things. And so, in a sense, I think we've kind of trapped people on the feel that government's going to be the ultimate provider through furlough or through whatever else, and then realising they're not. And they should have never been, in a way. We believe in people's independence, believe in their ability to run their own lives uh, and responsibility and all of those things. And now there's a, almost a greater need for them to kind of need government, if that makes sense. Andy? Thank you for talking us through it today. Thank you. There you have it. The numbers are now in. We're nearly four years after that experiment. And we now see the scale of devastation. I'm sorry if I got a bit worked up there, but as long-term fans of this channel will know, we were talking about this in 2020, and actually it's kind of obvious. You don't need a PhD, you don't need to be a social scientist to work out that if you forcibly shut down the whole of society and don't let anyone leave their homes for months, in some cases years on end, there's going to be incredibly dramatic effects. And yet, nobody was talking about that at the time. Here we are, entirely predictably, three, four years later, and our kids, institutions, the economy, the money spent, the, the devastation is so widespread. And meanwhile, Sweden, country not far from here, they never docked down and many of these effects they won't see. If other people that you know are still saying that it was the precautionary principle that we have to be understanding because politicians should err on the side of caution, well, show them this video, show them this report, and I don't think there was anything cautious about it. It was reckless in the extreme. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.